Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. There is a new Bob Dylan box set out. It's volume 13 of his bootleg series. It's called Trouble No More, and it covers one of the most mysterious and talked about phases of a very mysterious and talked about career, which is his gospel phase. And it's often an overlooked phase, in part because the studio albums as we learn from this box set, don't represent it as well as it could be represented. And I have Andy Green here in the studio. Hey, Andy. Hi, Brian. Hey, how you doing? And we're going to be talking with several people who know about and were involved with this period. And starting, I talked yesterday with Clinton Halen, who has written numerous books about Bob Dylan, including the biography Behind the Shades. And Clinton has a new book out called Trouble in Mind, pegged to this box set, which is a pretty exhaustive look at the gospel period. One of the things Clinton and I talked about was the fact that Bob, on stage during this time, would engage in these sort of stage raps, which is pretty funny when you consider he has said almost nothing on stage in any other period before or since. But he talked a lot, and the things he said were somewhat shocking to the audience. I told you the times were changing, and they did. I said the answer was blowing in the wind, and it was. And I'm saying to you now, Jesus is coming back, and he is. There is no other way to salvation. That was a typical night. And the, the crowds didn't quite know what to make of that, did they, Andy? No, and these were long, long sermons, and they were really fire and brimstone. He talked about the apocalypse. He talked about the Antichrist, who was going to return to earth soon in human form, and there'd be a battle between good and evil. I mean, it was really very intense stuff he was saying on stage. At one point, he was doing a stage rap, and someone yelled out, rock and roll! <laughs> and he said, you want to rock Rock and roll, you can go down and rock and roll. You can go see Kiss, and you rock and roll all your way down to the pit, which yeah, is good advice. Because the context here is that they didn't advertise in advance of the tour that he wouldn't be playing the old songs. And the previous year, he had toured and done all his hits. So fans show up, they are seeing Bob Dylan, and they get two hours of gospel songs and not one old song. That said, an absolutely stunning band, including Jim Keltner on drums, who we will actually be talking to later. And, you know, incredibly impassioned vocal performances by Bob. Tell me some of the songs that you think that we should uh, play for people to get, give them a taste of this. I think that the song Slow Train is a pivotal one and it's on this box set in many forms and it's sort of the key song of the entire era and it changed a lot as they played it live. And what's the version that we should be hearing now? I think the version from London in 1981. Is okay, let's uh, let's hear that. That's awesome, and it moves away from the slicker sound of the album into something that's almost like a Highway 61 revisited thing, right? Yeah, it's a totally different tempo to the song. It's a a brand new arrangement, and it's incredible. And what's another one we should do before we get into Clinton Halen? I think Caribbean Wind is a stellar song from this time period. Which he left off... A uh, shot of love, right? Yes, it's a standard Dylan move to record a brilliant song and then not put it on the album. It was ultimately released on Biograph in '86, I believe. Yes, but it's a spectacular song, and this is a live version from I think 1980. Yes, at the Fillmore in San Francisco. Okay, let's hear that. Showing Miami and the theater. 
yeah. Yes. So, so he cut that off the album, but he included Lenny Bruce. Yes, his rather weak song about Lenny Bruce. As we might discuss later, there was there could have been another album instead of Shot of Love. And as is not altogether atypical, he left out some of his best songs and put out something pretty compromised. But let's hear for a little bit me talking with Clinton Halen about Dylan's gospel years and trying to put it in some context. How do you make sense of it artistically and personally for Bob Dylan? Uh, well, I mean, certainly the, the gospel years are some of the most creative years of of Dylan's entire career. Uh, everybody knows about the kind of white light of creativity that he struck between 1965 and 1967. There really isn't any other periods in Dylan's career, uh, certainly as a songwriter, where he's writing as many songs and as many great songs as he does between 1979 and 1981. Um, Mm. The big difference is that the records that he makes in that period really don't reflect the quality of his songwriting and the quality of the live performances. Until now, all one's really been able to uh, draw on are bootleg tapes and, and bootleg uh, albums uh, to, to to understand what, what went down. The albums Slow Train Coming, Saved and, and Shot of Love, none of them really stand up alongside the, the very best of Dylan's work. And, and, and frankly, the material that he had to hand, they should have. On a psychological level, what is your best understanding of what led Dylan to be open to a conversion of this magnitude at that point in his life? People uh, become religious at the midpoint in their life for all sorts of reasons. And uh, Dylan himself has poured, poured scorn on those who see it simply as that he was having a bad time of it. That probably is a slight cliche. He'd obviously been through a very messy and expensive divorce. Previous works, legal, had not been particularly well received in America. And he certainly was indulging himself in sex, drugs and rock and roll at that point. Uh, All of which, you know, certainly would have pushed him in that direction. He says that he had an actual vision of Jesus in a hotel room in Arizona. Clearly, something profound happened because, you know, he started wearing a cross on stage and started quoting the gospel according to Matthew. And by the time he got to the end of the the 1978 tour, uh, he was obviously ripe for, you know, uh, a Christian kind of experience. You had obviously already been a fan of this period. Delving deeper, which I assume went well beyond I know it went well beyond what's in this box set. It seems like you listened to every show and the tour and all the outtakes and probably much more and, and did a ton of research and interviews. How much did delving into all that material change your estimation of the importance and, and value of this period? Um, well, I've always been a champion of this period, and I've always celebrated the quality of songwriting at this time, uh, both the overtly Christian material, the songs that appear on Slow Train and Saved, and the songs that he was writing directly after that, some of which uh, ended up on Shot of Love, but most of which did not. Being in a position to hear a lot more of the the rehearsals, the studio tape, the live shows, certainly reinforced my sense of the greatness of the music in this period. Did it change it dramatically? No. Uh, you know, uh, you're really just connecting the dots. Um, the story of the making of the albums 
changed dramatically just because the information that was available, um, you know, made Dylan's decision-making in the studio uh, writ large. So, Shot of Love, deeply flawed album, you know, is a very complex story. And what I originally intended to be uh, one chapter uh, in the book ended up being a quarter of the book um, because, um, you know, it really was a very laborious process and one where, unfortunately, he got further and further away from the album that he could and should have been making and started making judgment calls that were based more upon what he was being told, which was that he couldn't make another religious album, that his record label wouldn't be very happy and and that his producer didn't really understand what he was doing um, and that the songs that he'd written six months earlier had got away from him. So the result was an album that is a minor work in his canon when it should have been one of the five or six greatest albums of his career. You suggest there's basically a missing album instead of Slash before Shout of Love, that there should have been some other better album? Well, I mean, the answer is there would have been, uh, if it wasn't for Sony, uh, yeah. or, or CBS at the time. Uh, the answer is that, um, unbelievably, in 1978, when Dylan signed uh, his latest recording contract at that point, uh, one of the conditions of the contract was that Dylan did not deliver an album uh, less than 12 months after he delivered his previous album. Mm. So you had an extraordinary situation where a major artist was being curtailed from making music when he was inspired to make it because the record label couldn't handle marketing it. Uh, it's a ridiculous situation and, of course, completely unlike the situation in 1965-1966 where Dylan delivered four albums worth of music within the space of 17 months and they had no problem putting those out. You know? Right. So he found himself in a situation where um, after he returned from, from sailing around the Caribbean in the summer of 1980 and started rehearsing with the band, he had basically an album's worth of songs. Uh, only one of those songs ended up on Shot of Love, which is Every Grain of Sand. Um, and so on the new set, you hear songs of the quality of Caribbean Wind, of Croom Still Waiting at the Altar, of Making a Liar Out of Me, which is a song no one knew about, uh, Young Become Sin. Uh, these are major songs. And uh, they, effectively, he was not being allowed to record them. Um, and by the time he did get around to start to starting work on that album, uh, six months later, he'd written a whole bunch of other songs. <laughs> so of course, those songs got sidelined. What we end up with is a, is, is a missing album, and a very strong missing One of the questions I've seen fans debate over the years, and people have tried to get an answer out of Dylan, and it's very hard to get an answer, is the extent to which his religious beliefs actually changed versus did he just stop talking about them? It certainly, in, in some degree of intensity, cooled down. It, is, it seems clear. But what's your position on all that? You mean after 1980? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I would be very surprised if if Dylan wasn't still um, a Christian. He's never made any statement that would suggest that. Um, for an apostate to be singing songs like "In the Garden," which he was still singing in the 1990s, would be extraordinary. Yeah. He. Uh, gave permission to for 
uh, an album of a tribute album of Dylan's gospel period to be released in the early 2000s, right. to which he contributed a track himself. Going to change my way of thinking. Again, would be an extraordinary thing to do if he no longer subscribed to those songs. That was Clinton Halen, who wrote a new book about the gospel years called Trouble in Mind. And we have with us right now Regina McCrary, who sang with Bob throughout that entire period and is a gospel legend in her own right and comes from a a family of gospel royalty. Hey, Regina. Hey, how are you doing? I'm okay. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's a blessing to be here. So I've heard the story of uh, you auditioning for Bob Dylan. I think he was lying on a hotel bed in leather pants. And then later, your parents met him. And yeah. uh, and I think your mom had a very funny comment to him after a concert. Do you remember what she said to him? Oh, yes, I do. She um, she walked up to him and she said, Baby, I just, I just want to ask you one question. And he said, What is it? She said, What the hell were you saying? I couldn't understand one word. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe it was at that moment that my mo- that Bob fell in love with my mom. <laughs> and then didn't you actually take him for dinner at your parents' house? Yes, she did. She took him to dinner and uh, she took him in the room, in the kitchen, when everybody, I, my mom cooked dinner because she knew that we were in town. And um, when Bob got to my parents' house, he had his bodyguard with him. And um, bodyguard, his name was Don. And when we got there, um, uh, he was standing in front of Bob like he was casing out the place. And <laughs> my mom looked and she was like, baby, what you doing? <laughs> and he said, uh, um, I'm Mr. Dillon's bodyguard. And she said, well, he don't need no bodyguard up in my house. And she looked at Bob and said, do you need a bodyguard up in my house? And he said, no, ma'am. She said, well, come on in. And she said, now, bodyguard, you're off duty. Come on in and eat. So the bodyguard and Bob and everybody else came over and everybody was eating. But my mom took Bob in the kitchen where she was. And she told him, you're going to come in the kitchen where I am, and I'm going to fix your plate. She said, because you skinny and you need to put some weight on. So she took him in the kitchen, and she fixed his plate of food on a big platter. Wow. So Bob enjoyed being uh, taken into your world, clearly. Yeah, I mean, you know, the way that we grew up uh, in my house, we grew up because my father, being a, a pastor and a singer, and also a promoter. When I was a little girl growing up, it was during the time when um, really black people couldn't go to hotels and mm. they were safe. So a lot of the people like uh, Reverend James Cleveland, Pastor Shirley Caesar, the Caravans, uh, Dorothy Love Coates, uh, all of these people and many, many more uh, stayed at our house. So as a little girl, we grew up with all these people in our house. So, um, Nobody in my house was like, oh, Bob Dylan, autograph. Uh, hmm. we, we didn't do that. And he felt at home and he felt very comfortable. How much curiosity did he have about gospel music itself and gospel songs? And how much do, you know, were you able to kind of 
share with him about all that, about the tradition, really? Well, I don't know how much curiosity he had, but when I met Bob, um, uh, he was sold out to what he was, not only what he was singing about, he believed 100% what he was singing about. Mm. So I didn't see any curiosity. What I saw was um, a man that was hungry to know more. So it wasn't me that did a lot of talking with him. I turned him on to my father. It was like the the night um, he met my dad for the first time. He shook my dad. You know, my dad, it was 17 members of my family that came to the show. Okay. I come from a big family, four boys, four girls. At the time, I was married. That's why my last name was Havis, H-A-V-I-S. And um, so my husband, my little boy, everybody was there. And uh, when the show was over with, um, I brought my mom and my dad and my brothers and sisters back with my son. And um, everybody met Bob. And then it was just my dad and Bob and myself. And it was Tim Drummond, the bass player, standing there. And my dad looked at him and he said, so you take him a little girl out on the road? Bob looked at him and said, yeah. My dad walked up to Bob and shook his hand, held his hand out. Bob put his hand in my dad's hand. My dad shook Bob Dylan's hand and looked him straight in the eyes and said, don't make her cry. Mm. And from that moment on, it ended up being an opportunity for Bob Dylan and my father to um, get to know each other Whenever I saw Bob dealing with any kind of confusion, because people were sending letters and notes and saying that he, you know, pray over this this um, piece of cloth, turn to the east in the morning, do this, turn to the west and do that, uh, put this oil here, put this oil there, sleep with this up under your pillow. They were sending him all kind of things as far as what their beliefs and what they thought. And um, I called my dad and I said, Daddy, he's, he's going through because people are sending him their opinion and, and what they think. So I remember my dad telling Bob, your walk with God is as simple and as private as you're coming into the world mm. and you're going out of the world. And your father, of course, was the, the Reverend Samuel McCrary, who, who sang in the Fairfield Four. So, yes, yeah. my daddy. Yeah. I am a daddy's girl, yeah. Mm. Uh, and the experience of being on the road and facing audiences who famously sometimes were very enthusiastic and sometimes were, were very confused, sometimes were hostile to what you guys were bringing to them. What was your experience of that? Well, you know what? I don't know, but I thank God for this. Um, when people tell me about it being very hostile, I have to honestly say to you, I guess God must have numbed my ears mm-hmm. because I don't remember hearing it when I was out there. I don't remember hearing people booing and hackling and going off when I was out there telling that story about the old woman trying to get on the train. And I don't remember them booing and hackling and going off when I and the other girls came out to do the 20, 25-minute set we did. I don't remember that. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but I thank God that he numbed my ears to that because I don't know if I would have been able to stay out there on that stage 
if that was happening while I was out there telling that story. So whatever it took, I, I, I truly believe that God did whatever it took for me to tell that story, sing that song, and the other ladies come out and we all do that. I mean, I, I know there were people that were saying, sing lay, lady lay, and, <laughs> and baggy farm no more. And I, I heard them saying things like that, but I guess it, it didn't affect me the same way. I guess that it was wrote up in the paper and in magazines about because um, I just kept doing what it is I love to do. Did Bob ever give specific feedback on the way you'd sing, which harmonies, that kind of thing, or was he really trusting your instincts? Well, um, when it came down to myself and the other girls, uh, we all came together knowing what part that we sang. I'm an alto second soprano, and Carol Dennis was a soprano. And uh, when Mona, when Carol left and Mona Lisa Young came out, uh, uh, Mona Lisa was a soprano. Um, uh, Clyde King was like the tenor, the bottom. Um, Helena Springs, when she was there, she was that tenor bottom. Um, Regina Peoples was alto and she and I shared or she went up to soprano. We were very, very versatile. We could sing and Mary McCreary, whatever part. We could sing when somebody had to do a lead. One of us jumped into that, that um, alto, soprano, baritone tenor, and we just kept rolling. We knew, and he knew we knew what we were doing. He trusted us. You know, it's somewhat delicate, but there obviously was uh, some romance going on with some of the backup singers and Bob in the sense that, that Carolyn later became his, his wife. Um, was, was that a factor at all? Or was that something you were aware of? How did that all work into everything, you know, especially with the theme of the tour and everything else? Well, let me put it to you like this. If you ask me anything about me, ask me anything about singing the songs, all of that, my family and Bob, I can tell you as much as you want to know. But one of the reasons why my longevity with Bob was so long is because I learned it takes six months to learn how to take care of your business, six months to learn how to stay out of other people's business. You got a whole year. So that's how I that's how I carried myself. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Yeah. I understand yeah. you. Um, at some point he began introducing some of his old songs back into the show. Yeah. How did you feel about that? What do you remember about that, learning the songs? Anything about that sticks out in your mind? Well, you know what? It's so crazy. Uh, I already knew a lot of his songs. I just didn't know him. When I first auditioned uh, for Bob Dylan, I didn't know him. He could have been standing next to me on the bus stop, and I wouldn't have known that was Bob Dylan. But if if he sung his songs, then I would know his music. I knew his music. I just didn't know him. So um, him putting those songs back in the show didn't bother me at all. I, I liked it because of the simple fact that um, um, I remember Ain't Gonna Work on Maggie's Farm no more. I remember those songs, and, and I liked them because during the time when those songs came out, I was going from um, adolescence, I was going from that eight, nine, ten to teenage years, I was either in elementary school going to junior high school. 
Yeah. But I remember the song. So when I got a chance to get up on stage and sing with the man who wrote Blowing in the Wind, come on. I sung that in school. And about four years ago, I believe, you joined him on stage and you sang Blowing in the Wind again, right? Yeah, well, you know, my sisters, the McCrary sisters, we, um, our very first CD, uh, we recorded our version of Blowing in the Wind. Hmm. And before before we did that, and you should have it. You should be playing that. I have to say that. All right. But um, our version of Blowing in the Wind, before we put it on the CD, I met with Bob and I said, I need you to listen to this and give me the okay on it. And he heard it and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's got dirt on it. I said, <laughs> I said well, what does that mean? And he said, you know, people are out here just doing music just to do it and it sounds so plastic and so concrete and dirt is the realness and the rawness of the world and what people need to hear today he said and i'm not saying it because i wrote the song i'm saying it because you've taken a song that i wrote back in the 60s and you've brought it into today's world and the world needs to hear it so from that you need to go get it and play blowing in the wind by the mccrary system our producer is working on that, but but you sang on stage with him about four years ago, so how'd that happen? Yeah, it wasn't just me, it was my sisters and I, it was the McCurry sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, he performed in Cincinnati, and we went up on stage in Cincinnati and sung Blowing in the Wind with him then, and then he came to Nashville, and he's been in Nashville twice, and whenever he comes in town, he asked us up on the stage to sing Blowing in the Wind with him. And how did he seem compared to back in the day? What what, what struck you about him now versus then? Uh, I think he's more sure of who he is and what he's doing and where he's going. Mm, that's a good answer. Well, we found yeah. uh, we found the McCrary sisters Blowing in the Wind. Yes! We're, we're, yes, and we're, we're going to hear that. And Regina, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. God bless you. Same to you. Okay. And let's hear the McCrary sisters blowing in the wind, and we'll be right back with more on Bob Dylan's Gospel Period. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. So yesterday I was talking with Clinton Halen, who wrote a new book called Trouble in Mind about Bob's uh, gospel period, and maybe we can hear a little bit more of that interview. I was asking him, Clinton maintains that Bob's Christian beliefs have not changed at all. Uh, and what I wanted to point out is that, you know, listen, Bob's been seen at synagogues. He goes to synagogues for high holy days. He, uh, Andy was pointing out earlier, he's went to a Chabad telethon. So it seems complicated to me. Uh, my best guess, I, I asked Clinton about the possibility that Bob might see himself as a sort of messianic Jew, which is, you know, the in the Vulgate, sort of a, a Jew for Jesus, which I, I think is very possible, especially something that there's the most evidence for. And uh, Clinton disagreed. So let's hear that little bit and a bit more from me talking with Clinton Halen. I mean, I've heard people suggest that he might be some form of a messianic Jew. In other words, some version of a sort of someone who is both Jewish but believes in, uh, you know, Christ being the Savior. Did you buy that as a possibility? No, <laughs> if he believes that Christ is a saviour, we have a word for that. The word is Christian. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, you got me on that one. A messianic Jew. Uh, that's a Christian, you know. Um, 
uh, yeah, uh, obviously uh, a Christian can still believe in the Old Testament. He can still believe in the Scriptures. That, you know that that predate the New Testament. Uh, right. Well, you know, he's been seen at high holiday services, so that that is not something a typical Christian <laughs> would not be necessarily attending high holiday services at a synagogue. Uh, well, okay, so sorry, I can't see why. His children, as, as I understand it, have been brought up as Jews. So, um, and obviously he's participated in his children's bar mitzvahs. You know, uh, his stepdaughter Marie is married to uh, a very devout Hasidic Jew. So clearly there, there has to be some blurring of the lines if he's going to remain a family man. And uh, I don't see any contradiction. I don't see, I don't see why a Christian would have a problem attending a Jewish service. As I say, I've never, there's nothing in his work that suggests that he no longer believes that Christ is the Messiah. And if he believes that, he's a Christian. Alongside the Christian beliefs per se, uh, as you write, he became particularly interested in the idea of the last days, partially inspired by the book uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, which was obviously stems from Christianity, but he took a special interest, and I, I possibly continued interest, in the idea that we are uh, in, in the end times in some way. How much of that shaped his worldview at that time? Oh, uh, it massively shaped his worldview. I mean, there's no question that, uh, in a sense, the when people talk about the gospel years, what they actually mean um, are the apocalyptic years. Yes. Um, because as we just discussed, uh, I don't think I don't think that his his eschatological point of view in terms of his beliefs has shifted that much since 1979. But but clearly his view about the end of days has changed dramatically. Um, but he was still talking in those terms in the mid 80s. So it took a long time for that shift to happen. And certainly, you would certainly have to say that until at least 1985, he was still writing songs that were very much imbued with that. I mean, When the Night Comes Falling from the Sky mm. and Something's Burning, both of which are on Empire Burlesque, are clearly have that same feeling. And most of Infidels is filled with references to the Book of Revelation. Um, so, so yes, uh, certainly had a very profound effect upon him. Of course, one must be wary because we're talking about a guy who in 1962 wrote a song called I'd Hate to Be You on That Dreadful Day. <laughs> you know, so let's let's be a bit cautious about the idea. Dylan did not discover the apocalypse in 1978 or 1979. You know, he was writing songs, uh, even things like Gates of Eden can be seen to have very much that kind of edge. So, you know, that thread runs through his work. And obviously it comes together in 1979, and the stuff that he's saying from the stage is is very much a warning to people to shape up. Did not candy coat the message. I'm a big fan of his stage raps from that period, especially the ones where he sort of took on the band Kiss, took on Bruce Springsteen, and they are not included on the box set, I believe, and they're not in the concert film. They're also not included. Do you think he's embarrassed by them, or do you think he, they thought that it would detract from the overall thing by put there just by being so <laughs> attention grabbing on their own? What, what's your thought there? Uh, well, I mean, certainly, I don't think there's any question that, um, that, that Dylan at some point expressed a reluctance for that material to appear on the set. I mean, there obviously are commercial considerations, and a decision was made somewhere down the line that none of the rats would be used. Um, I, I think it's a mistake, frankly. Hmm. Um, I, I, I can see that um, nobody is going to put out uh, his, 
his famous anti-homosexual rap from Hartford in 1980 really would uh, yeah. rattle some cages. But there are there are plenty of raps from that period that could have been used judiciously. And not only should they send anyone screaming to the hills, but but also they help you understand where that passion and that intensity comes from. You know, when when Dylan says, "I told you the answer was blowing in the wind," and it was. And I told you the times were changing, and they were. And I'm telling you, Jesus is coming back. And then go straight into solid rock. You know, they, it it really is like someone tipping over a table of cutlery. I mean, it is an extraordinary moment, and you feel the energy. You know, and and so that relationship between what he's saying and what he's singing, if it's removed from the process, and you just have the song. You you don't have the full story. I can manipulate people as well as anybody. I know all the angles, know how to make a take I can make believe I must love almost anybody. Hold them in control. We're about to be joined by drummer Jim Keltner. Jim, are you there? Yeah. Jim, thanks so much for being here. Jim is one of the greatest drummers of all time and one of the greatest session drummers of all time. And and Jim, in the in the seventies, you know, especially you you were not uh, you were not going on the road. You were staying in the studio. But when Bob Dylan wanted you to go on tour, you said yes. How come? Well, you know, uh, it was Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, no, Bob uh, has always uh, been real special to me uh, since the first time I, uh, you know, I, the first time I met him, we it was with uh, one of my favorite rhythm sections in life, which was Leon, uh, Russell, and Carl Radle and Jesse Ed Davis, and um, we played uh, on uh, Bob's um, "Watching the River Flow," and um, that day in the studio with him was. Uh, it was amazing. It was one of my favorite things that I, I've ever done in my life, and uh, and it was. And we were meeting Bob Dylan, and uh, Bob was. You can imagine what he was like in the early seventies. You know, he he was, you know, he was he was Bob uh, full on, and uh, he didn't talk much, um, and um, but I. Then the next time I met him was uh, we did uh, knocking on heaven's door, which was. Uh, another one of my monumental times in the studio for me mm. and uh just for many many reasons and uh so then uh that kind of put bob for me in a in a very special place and i and don't forget you know the the uh i have had the great great fortune of playing with these wonderful geniuses you know all along that i was playing with john for for several years and uh and george and and Randy Newman and Neil Young, I, you know, all these, all these amazing artists. Bob, to me, was always the president. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when he called, um, I went down. I would always go. He called me several times to come to go on the road with him, uh, but uh, <clears throat> I just always went down just to be able to hang out with him and see what he was doing, and then tell him at the end of the day that I couldn't go on the road. Uh, but this time. Um, listening to the songs uh, as they went by, and this was also different because he wanted me to listen to the record by myself, and um, and of course it hadn't been released, and I had no idea what it, what he was up to, and um, each song that went by was more powerful 
and it just just hit me so hard that um, by the time I'd listened to the whole record, I went upstairs and uh, went into his room uh, where he was typing, and I said, listen, I'm going to, whatever you're going to do, wherever you're going to go, I want to do it with you. Hmm. And uh, so I spent two years with him. And that record was Slow Train Coming, of course. And yeah, Slow Train Coming. It was just one of the most powerful things I'd ever heard in my life. And he assembled this incredible band, including you, and then went out, as we've been talking about earlier on the show, and went out and played shows <laughs> that consisted entirely of new songs, none of his classics. What was that like to be part of a band that on one hand was this incredibly powerful musical force, on the other hand playing stuff that wasn't necessarily what the audience wanted to hear? Well, for me... Uh, I, I just remember that it that uh, that that seemed to be Bob's mo, you know, from what I knew about his past, you know, uh, you know, shaking people up by picking up the electric guitar, something simple like that. But it, but it just showed the power of whatever it is, the hold that Bob has always had on his audience, you know, people just in general, uh, and uh, and so. To me, when we were out there, we, the first gig was the um, in San Francisco, and the audience was real up close with the stage. It was kind of a smallish kind of little venue, and uh, and um, you could see the people really clearly, and it was just astonishing to see, and to, you know, to smell the pot. You know, uh, <laughs> it was early on, but still, that's the way rock concerts have always been. You know, kind of, and especially when you're. Uh, when you're close proximity to the audience like that, and so you can smell the the the, the pot wafting through the the air, and and uh, you can see people uh, uh, yelling and and cursing at Bob, you know, uh, rock and roll, Bob, you you know, so what? I mean, you know, and uh, and then, but this one particular time, I I recall, and this I'll never forget. This is burned in my memory. This guy with a kind of a I don't know whether he had a suit. Or, but he'd look he's just real conservative looking and his wife or his girlfriend and a little boy like I, I just thought it was a little family they were sitting next to this guy with a red bandana on looked like Axl Rose or something <laughs> who was smoking and this guy stood up after the the guy was, uh, had been yelling and cursing at Bob the guy with the bandana this guy stood up and he said and he, he threw his hands up in there and he said Bob we love you we love your music and I just, uh, and, and this is all, this is, this, is, this is me right behind Bob watching this. Yeah. And we're playing these songs that I know they have no clue what's going on. Uh, I, I, I thought that, well, the confusion out there must be tremendous. Um, and, uh, and Bob, I felt like Bob was loving every minute of it. He thrived off of it. Yeah, and yeah. In, the, in the one minute uh, that we have left, what what was your favorite moment of that tour, favorite moment with Bob? What stands out in your memory the most? Oh, God, there's so many. Uh, but uh, uh, one thing that happened in Seattle, uh, I, I never saw this before ever, and I played with Simon and Garvunkel and, and some of the biggest acts you could think of on tour where people were screaming so loud but I never saw this before um, Bob got a, a a five minute it was very close to a full five minute standing ovation wow in Seattle uh, for 
after we'd played the song called Solid Rock. Um, it was one of my favorites to play. You know, it was real high energy and uh, and uh, fantastic words and and uh, the band really really kicked into high gear at that point when we we'd get to that song. And uh, sometimes we did it better than others, but this one night, you know, I, I never will forget that. That's in fact on tape. I have the I have a tape of that. Well, Jim Kellner, thank you so much for being here. There's so much more I'd like to talk to you about. Maybe we can have you back sometime. Uh, but, Absolutely. But this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We were talking about Bob Dylan's Gospel Period, and we'll be back next week. In the meantime, download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Try to leave us a really nice review on iTunes if you can, or just leave us five stars. I don't care. And in the meantime, we'll be back next week at 1 p.m. here on Sirius XM's Volume, Channel 106. And have a great week. We'll see you next week.